right, so on the last night of his earthly life, you guys know this, somewhere in an upper room there in Jerusalem, uh, what happened was Jesus poured out his heart to his disciples and he poured out his heart to the Father. And so we saw earlier in chapters 14, 15, and 16 that Jesus poured out his heart to his disciples with instruction. And then we saw in chapter 17 that the Lord poured out his heart to his Father with intercession. And so now that the upper room discourse is over and now that the high priestly prayer uh, is complete, it's finally time for Jesus to drink the cup that the Father had given to him. It's finally time for Jesus to embrace the suffering and the death that he's gonna experience on the cross for you and for me. And so right now, if you're looking at chapter 18, verse one, I just want you to say amen so I know you're with me here. And so what an honor it is to teach the word of God to you guys this morning. I hope you'll lean in this morning and hear. And so when Jesus had spoken these words, the upper room discourse, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. All right, so it's Thursday night. It's late at night, AD 33, the Thursday night before his crucifixion. They're done with the upper room discourse. So what, is, what happens? The Lord and the 11, they leave Jerusalem and they head east. They head east. They go down into the uh, Kidron Valley. They cross over this intermittent stream called the Brook of Kidron and they go up onto the Mount of Olives. By the way, the lowest point in that time um, of the Kidron Valley as they're crossing over that little brook Right, it's, it's 200 feet below the Temple Mount. And so I, I want you guys to try to picture all of this. So you have Jerusalem, right? You have the Jewish Temple, and then you have the Kidron Valley, and then that slopes up to the western slopes of the Mount of Olives where you can actually see the Jewish Temple. So Jesus and the 11 go up, and they enter to a very special place on the Mount of Olives where Jesus liked to frequent whenever he was in Jerusalem. John, we just read it, calls that special place a garden. Matthew and Mark, they call it Gethsemane. All right, so the Garden of Gethsemane uh, was actually a walled-in private olive tree grove, probably owned by somebody who knew Jesus, a very generous guy, right, who would allow Jesus to have access to this special place, this olive tree grove, whenever he was in the area so he could teach his disciples so they could pray. Now, the word Gethsemane, everybody say Gethsemane for me. All right, so in the original language, that word means oil press. What does that mean? That means that in that walled-in private olive tree grove, there was an olive oil press that was there. And the olive oil press that was used to crush the olives in order to extract the oil so that the oil could be poured out for the benefit of others. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to remind you that in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's there that Jesus Christ, like an olive, is being crushed. He's being pressed as he's praying to his Father. Father, if there's any way, let this cup be uh, 
passed away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, right? And so he's being pressed to the point where he's, he's sweating um, drops like blood. And not only that, but Christ, in a little while, he's gonna go to the cross. And ladies and gentlemen, he is gonna be crushed on Calvary's cross for your sin and for my sin. And what is that gonna lead to? That is going to lead to the pouring out of the oil. Oil, which is symbolic of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The crushing of Christ is gonna lead to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so if you're a born again Christian and the Spirit of God lives in you, the oil's in you, are you thankful? Can you thank God this morning for that gift of the Holy Spirit? So, so good. And so, thank God the Spirit came. And if you go with us to Israel, guess what? We're gonna take you to the Mount of Olives. Now, no one knows where the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed in actually was, but we know the, the hill where it was called the Mount of Olives. And when we go there, you're gonna see olive trees that are hundreds of years old. Some of those trees on the Mount of Olives today, they're 900 years old. Today there's a lot of private gardens, or at least some private gardens on the Mount of Olives. When we're there as a group, we usually get access to at least one of them. We're given about an hour. They let us into a walled-in olive tree grove, and we're there where I can teach and where we all can break up and go and sit around the olive trees and we can pray and think about the sacrifice that the Lord gave for us. And so I hope you can join us one day. Our next trip in Israel is gonna be March 16th through 26th. Okay, and so I wanna let you guys know this about a year in advance so you can start saving your money but you gotta sign up. I think we're gonna be packed, all right? And so I've been there, I think, six times now, and I can't wait to go back again. Uh, Pastor Matt Messiano, who's an amazing, um, um, he's, one of the hats that he wears is our, our missions guy, and so he does a great job with all the administration and leading on the ground these trips. I'm there to give devotions, 15 to 20 or so devotions, and we also have a guide that's there, and he's like a walking encyclopedia, and. And so I wanna encourage you guys, I'm talking a lot because I'm giving you time to get that information down, but I really can't adequately express how special it is to go to the land of the Bible, to actually encounter the places where the events of the Old Testament and the New Testament actually took place. Whether it's up in the north to Mount Hermon, or whether it's way down in the south in Getty, whether we're talking about over by the Mediterranean Sea, we spend a night on the Mediterranean right there on the beach, or whether you're talking about on the Sea of Galilee or down the Dead Sea, all these places in between, I think if you go, I think it's gonna be a trip of a lifetime for you, and so I hope it gave you enough time. Now look at verse two. It says that Judas, Judas who betrayed him, also knew the place. He knew where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Why? For Jesus, end of verse two, often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there. He went to the garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so Judas had been to Gethsemane plenty of times 
with the Lord and the 11, so he knew exactly where to find Jesus. And so I want you to picture the scene, right? With treachery in his unregenerate heart. Here's Judas, and he's leading two groups. He's leading a band of soldiers, and he's leading officers that were sent from the chief priests, that's Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Of course, he's, he's leading these troops from um, the Sanhedrin. And so let's break down those two groups. The band of soldiers, first of all, were referring to Roman soldiers. So this is one of the groups that Judas is leading in the middle of the night with torches to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's a little tricky here um, to understand what the original word refers to in our text because if you look it up, it simply means a military cohort, right? BLB, if you're new, is Blue Letter Bible, great online free resource. Hope you'll check it out. So Blue Letter Bible. But you look up the word and it could refer to the 10th part, part of a legion. So a Roman legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers. A 10th part is 600 men. But it also could refer to a maniple or the 30th part of a legion, which would only be 200 men. Or it could just mean any band, company, or detachment of Roman soldiers. So the number of Roman soldiers that followed Jesus, well, we can't really be completely sure. We're thinking between 200 and 600 men. Now... That's the Romans. In addition to that, John tells us there's some officers that have been sent from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Who are these guys? These are Jewish law enforcement officers. This is the temple police. These are the guys who were charged by the Sanhedrin um, to make sure there's law and order on the temple courts. So who came for Jesus? Well, I hope you know by now that it's an armed mob from both the Gentiles and the Jews. And they're coming for Jesus, and we're gonna pick it up right now in verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Can you guys say the two words, came forward, please? Why? Do I have you say that? Because ladies and gentlemen, that's what leaders do. Leaders don't run and hide. Leaders stand up and they confront evil. And so Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, right, phrase of derision here, because you know nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? or the hills of Galilee. So they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I love this, I am, and you need to know that the translators added he, it's not in the original. So Jesus said to them, I am, okay? So I want you uh, please to say, I am, go ahead. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, verse six, and when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So when Jesus said, I am, you need to know that Judas and this armed mob, they were hit with something so powerful, it knocked them off of their feet. This is absolutely stunning to me. 
It knocked them off their feet. And so, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replied, I am. Now, Jesus spoke three languages. He spoke Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic, and he spoke Greek. And we don't know what language he was speaking at any times because it depended on the person or the crowd that he was addressing. Okay, but you need to know that John wrote John in Greek, right? And you need to know that all scripture, the graphe, is breathed out by God. And so the Holy Spirit led John along when he wrote Ego Emi, okay? And so there's a good chance that Jesus did speak Greek because he's talking to a bunch of Romans as well as Jews, but whether it was Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, we don't know. But the important part I want to show you here is that John recorded it in the Bible, which is inspired by God, Ego Emi, which is one of the names of God, one of the names for God in the Old Testament. Now, does anybody know what LXX means? Please raise your hand. Okay, so you need to know this. In your Bible studies, you're gonna see it all the time when you're reading the Bible, LXX in the footnotes, right? So LXX refers to the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. What does that mean? That means that the Bible of Paul and the Bible of the apostles and the Bible of Jesus was the LXX, the Septuagint. In other words, third century BC, you had a bunch of Jewish historians and they took the Hebrew Bible and they translated it into Greek. Now I'm gonna come back to that here in just a moment, but you need to know that even in the Gospel of John, we see several passages in John where Jesus said, I am to declare that he was God, the same God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And so right now, I think we're in AD 33. Hit the rewind button, go back about 1400 years, and you got the burning bush, Exodus chapter three. And God tells Moses, you know the story, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses, right, he's unsure of himself, he doesn't know how he's gonna be accepted by the children of Israel, and he says to God, he says, when I go to the children of Israel and I say the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what's his name? What shall I say to them, God? And God replied from the burning bush, I am, back to the LXX, back to the Septuagint, Back to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, you need to know that I am there is ego emi. I am who I am, he said. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the term that Jesus used. And those people got something, hit with something so powerful and knocked them off their feet. The word I am literally means the self-existent one. It points to one of God's attributes. It's called his aseity. Um, we always love God questions, right? And so regarding, God, uh, regarding the aseity of God, we find out that it's his attribute of independent self-existence. God, we're talking about the one God, the true God, and the only God. God is the uncaused cause. Now, Jews and Christians have always known. 
I'm talking about believing Jews and believing Christians, have always known that the universe had a beginning. Well, newsflash, even now in the secular scientific community, guess what? They now know the universe had a beginning. So anybody in the scientific community, even if they're not a believer, they know for a fact that the universe had a beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, if something's got a beginning, there must be a beginner. And so God is the uncaused cause. He is the uncreated creator. He is the source of all things. That's his aseity. And so God, the one God, the true God, the only God, he is transcendent. What does that mean? That means that he is above and beyond and independent from his creation. He is above and beyond and independent from his space, time, material creation that he spoke ex nihilo from nothing into something. That's the true God, the only God, the one God. And not only that, he's eminent. So he's not just transcendent, he's eminent. That means he's in his creation, but he's distinct from it. He's distinct from the space-time material. We're not pantheists, we're theists. Not only that, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at one time. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. And he is self-existent. Existent. And that means that he is the great I am. We serve an awesome God. And right now, we should give him praise. <laughs> Worship him. Love him. Adore him. Clap for him. He's your creator. He knits you together in your mother's womb. Whether you believe in him or not, he exists and he's worthy of our praise. Jesus said, I am, and then knocked them off their feet. By the way, who do you think is in charge right now in your Bible? Not Judas and the mob. Jesus Christ is in charge. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And so, Verse seven, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, as they're getting up from the ground, I think their tone of voice has changed right now. And they're like, uh, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. This time he answers with restraint because he can't keep knocking them down all night, right? I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Do you see what leaders do? Leaders confront evil, and leaders protect their own. Let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. I don't have time, right? But if you're taking notes, John 6, 39 John 17, 12. And that goes with verse nine. You guys can study that later. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he's feeling his oats. He's all riled up because he just saw this mob fall down to the ground, right? He's in the flesh. <laughs> having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now, John, by the way, has got some connections in Jerusalem, which we'll talk about later. And he adds here, the servant's name was Malchus. 
So Jesus said to Peter, great job. Is that what he said? By the way, and by the way, he said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. By the way, how many of you guys know this is the sword of the Spirit? But how many of you guys know that evangelicals have this really bad reputation of using the Bible to beat people over the head? To be arrogant and use Bible verses to clobber people, to put them in their place. It's God's word. Listen, when we do that, we're no better than Peter who comes at this person with a sword and starts swinging it in the flesh. And Jesus rebuked him for his impulsive act. He said, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? And so, I just want to encourage you guys, don't use this as a weapon against people. Use it as a weapon in your spiritual warfare, absolutely. That's what it's made for. It's to sanctify us, it's to feed us, it's to encourage us, edify us, right? And it's to be used in spiritual warfare, but don't use it to pound people. Speak the truth in love. Listen, listen to what Peter said, who learned his lesson later on down the road. He said, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that is within you with gentleness and respect. Okay, and so let's be careful how we use the word of God. I'm not saying don't speak the truth. Yes, speak the truth, but speak it in love. Speak it in gentleness. Speak it um, with respect for others. And so Jesus rebukes Peter for his impulsive act. Luke tells us that Jesus actually healed this guy's ear. So he rebukes Peter, and he heals the guy's ear. Why did he do that? At least two reasons, probably more. Number one, he wanted to defuse the situation, because you know, as soon as Peter pulled out that sword, there's two to 600 Roman soldiers that went shh. So Jesus wants to defuse the situation, but not only that, Jesus wants to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk, okay? And so in his own words, listen, love your enemies. And so here you go, Malchus, I'm putting this bloody thing back on. You're good to go. Now hopefully you'll hear the gospel later on and get saved. All right, let's look at verse 4, 12. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now you need to know that the Jews are taking the lead here, not the Romans. The Romans are gonna take the lead later. But right now the Jews are kind of in charge. The Romans are there for backup support. The reason I know that is because they didn't take Jesus to Pilate right now. They took him to the Jewish leaders. We see that in verse 13. First they led Jesus to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Only John tells us this little bit of information here. So first he goes to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people, and that's his uh, prophecy that he didn't even know was a prophecy uh, that he gave in chapter 11, verse 50. And so let's talk about Annas and Caiaphas real quick. Annas was the high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. Now, I was thinking about this morning. So Jesus, when he was 12 years old, you guys remember when Jesus was 12 and his parents lost Jesus? <laughs> 
in the temple, and he was there on the temple courts, and he was sharing the word of God as a 12-year-old. So Annas was the high priest when all that was happening. I wonder if he heard about this kid, right? So anyway, Annas, high priest from AD 6 to AD 15. Now, things were so messed up back then. In the Old Testament, the high priest is the high priest for life. Here in the, in the New Testament, it reports the corrupted situation where the Romans are appointing high priests. And so Annas is the high priest from 86 to 8015, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now the high priest where we are in our Bibles in AD 33. By the way, Annas had five sons who were high priests at some point in their lives. So this guy knew how to wheel and deal. This guy, far from being a pious person, he was a corrupt businessman. And he made a lot of money on that racketeering scam that he had going on on the court of the Gentiles. Apparently, Annas, the old man Annas, is the guy who led that whole scam, and we talked about that in previous messages. So I want you to picture the scene. I'm telling you all that background to kind of get the feel of what's going on in Annas' house. So Annas must have been so upset, right? When three years later, we read about this in the beginning of John, Jesus walks into the temple courts. He sees what's going on. He sees that money's being exchanged, right, at this high rate, and that animals are being sold at a high rate. And he sees all this corruption going on. And what does Jesus do? He makes a whip. Tony, Jesus was not a wimp. He made a whip, and he drove these people out. He overturned the tables. That was three years ago. And now... Right? We're on late Thursday night, probably into Friday morning right now, in the middle of the night. Well, just after he came in on Sunday, Palm Sunday, remember? He comes in, what does he do? He goes back into the temple for a second time. And he does the same thing. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he shouts, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you guys have made it a den of thieves. And so Annas was profiting from that scam. And now as Jesus is throwing tables, guess what? His wallet's being affected. And so how many of you guys know Annas is really mad at Jesus? And here's Jesus standing bound before him and the old man's finally got his chance for revenge. Now hit the pause button. Let's leave the inside. Let's go back out to the courtyard and let's find out how Peter's doing okay so look at verse 15 now verse 15 it says that Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did this is interesting to me another disciple again John is the only one of the gospel writers who writes about this other disciple and since that disciple was known to the high priest he entered look at this with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So Peter's outside the courtyard, outside the gate. So the other disciple, there he is again, who was known to the high priest, he wanted to make that point, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, the gate, and brought Peter in. All right, who in the world is this other disciple? I think I heard it. John. All the guys that I read um, this week said this is John. One guy conceded it could have been another disciple, but the vast majority of scholars uh, that I 
have looked at say this is John, this is the beloved disciple, he doesn't want to use his name because he's kind of a humble guy. And so he gets Peter into the high priest's courtyard because he had connections. He knew the high priest. Now someone says, how in the world does young man who's a fisherman know the high priest? We don't know, we have no idea, right? Uh, so maybe it was through his dad. His dad Zebedee had a successful fishing business up on the Sea of Galilee and so maybe uh, he was rubbing shoulders with uh, uh, Annas or Caiaphas or whoever and introduced his son. We don't know how, but, but John nonetheless has connections. He goes to the servant girl. He's like, will you let my friend in? She's like, sure. And she lets Peter in to the courtyard. And you need to know, as Peter's walking in, she says something that rocks him to his sandals. Look at verse 17. It says that the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, at the end of verse 17, go ahead and say those three words. Denial number one. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. All right, so the servant girl already knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. So when you put all four gospels together and you try to figure this out, here's apparently what happened. In the Garden of Gethsemane, um, after Jesus is arrested, all the disciples split. They all ran, including John, right? They're running away, but then John has a second thought. John maybe gets convicted, and so John catches up to the soldiers and to Jesus, and he walks into the courtyard with Jesus. He had connections. And so now he's telling the servant girl, let him in. She knows he's a disciple, so it's natural for her to ask if they're friends, right? Hey, as he's walking in, hey, are you also a disciple of this man? And Peter, he knows he just swung his sword at the head of the servant's high priest, and maybe some of the friends of that guy are around. So he doesn't want to know, anybody to know. And so no doubt with his head down, he's like, no, I'm not. He goes over the fire and he tries to fit in with the crowd. Is, is this making sense, what's going on here in the Bible? All right, look at verse 19, back inside. Let's find out what happens. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. By the way, this, right now, this is Annas. This is not Caiaphas yet. So Annas questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. All right, so we're back in the house. Annas has his time for revenge. Jesus is standing there bound. Annas begins to drill him about two things, his disciples and his doctrine. All right, so regarding the disciples, Jesus like zip the lips, mums the word. He's not saying anything about the disciples. Why? Because he's a leader. He's protecting his own. Okay, but regarding his doctrine, Jesus is like, hey, I'm an open book. For three years, I've been teaching publicly. I've been teaching publicly in Galilee. I've been teaching publicly in Samaria. I've been teaching over there in the Decapolis, in Judea, Jerusalem, even on Annas, your own temple courts. I've been 
not secretive like you guys arresting me, you know, under the cover of night. You guys questioning me right now, at least, without witnesses. Later on, Caiaphas is gonna bring in false witnesses. But that's what's going on here, and I want you to see what happens. I don't think necessarily Jesus said all that. He said what's recorded there, but you guys get the idea of what's going on. Jesus is like, I'm an open book, but the inference there is you guys are the ones who are being secretive. And then, look at verse 22. Verse 22, when Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. The idea is the palm of his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? So, so Jesus says what he says, right? And this officer, this Jewish guy, this temple policeman, he all of a sudden goes, boom! And it's a hard slap right across Jesus' face. So how did Jesus respond? Did he step back and punch him in the face? Nope, that's not Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Only John gives us this little detail about what's going on, but you need to know that that slap was the first act of physical violence against the Lord that's gonna culminate really soon in the cross. By the way, I just gotta say, I hate to be the guy who has the hand that slapped his own creator. How'd you like to carry that hand around the rest of your life? I hope this guy got saved later on. Look at verse 25, let's go back outside, let's see how Peter's doing. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are, I'm sorry, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, and he said, can you say the last three words there? So that's denial number two. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. I told you those guys would be around, right? Asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. All right, so as the crowd, I want you to picture the scene here, as they're warming themselves around the fire because it's a cold night, Peter's trying to fit in with the crowd, he's warming himself too. And maybe the wind blew, I don't know, and maybe the fire flared, I don't know, but somehow this guy gets a full look at Peter's face. And all of a sudden, his, his reaction is, hey, wait a minute, you cut off my cousin's ear. <laughs> you were with Jesus. And Mark tells us that right then, Peter swore, I don't know the man. And right after that third denial, <laughs> the lengths I go to make a story come alive. Because I know you guys, you, your mind wanders around, you know, and come back. Come back. By the way, I didn't want to try to go cock-a-doodle-doo, because that would be dumb. But I think it's kind of cool that you guys got to hear the real thing. So cool, can we hear it again? Just... <laughs> yeah. 
makes me feel like I'm in, I'm in Haiti getting ready to go do a pastor's conference. Because <laughs> I'm in Haiti getting ready to go do a pastor's conference and that's what you hear all over the place. By the way, a quick side note, not in the notes. Can you please pray for our brothers and sisters in Haiti? Because it's getting really bad down there. I read an article last night and it's just horrific, the things that are happening and the gang violence. And we miss Haiti. We so want to go back to Haiti. We were discipling those kids three or four times a year. And now all of a sudden we haven't been in two years because we can't. I cannot take you guys down there um, in the condition that it is right now. And so pray for Haiti, pray for law and order to be restored to that country and that maybe a godly man will be appointed president. But man, we're just praying for our brothers and sisters and we have not forgotten them. Back to the story here, the rooster crows. Just like Jesus said that the rooster would crow, before uh, Peter denied him three times. Actually, look at all four Gospels, put them all together. Jesus said that the rooster would crow twice before Peter denied him three times. And so, Peter's feeling horrible right now. And Luke tells us that right after the rooster crowed, they led Jesus outside. And Luke tells us that Jesus looked at Peter. And so I want you to imagine this. Their eyes lock. Peter's just denied his Lord, and their eyes lock. And here's what I want you to understand today. I do not believe that when Jesus looked at Peter, it was a a look of anger or a look of disgust. I do not believe and I will not accept that when Jesus locked eyes with Peter, his expression was something like this. No, no, how many of you guys, you you know Jesus living in your heart, right? How many of you guys are walking with the Lord? That's not Jesus. Here's my opinion, I don't give my opinion often, but here's my opinion, that when when Jesus looked at Peter, it was a look of compassion and mercy, it was a look of love. It was a look kinda like, Peter, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's our Jesus, and I emphasize that because ladies and gentlemen, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance from sin. His kindness, and so if you're here today and you've blown it like Peter, Listen, stop listening to the devil tell you that God is mad at you. You need to listen to to, to, to the truth that Jesus loves you and he'll never leave you or forsake you and that it is his kindness that should motivate you to serve him for the rest of your life. That's the truth. That's Jesus. So if you know the Lord, you've accepted him as your personal savior and the Lord of your life, He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. By the way, Judas didn't know the Lord. So why did Peter fail? Let's apply this to our lives right now. Very, very simple. Number one, he was self-confident. Earlier, he said to Jesus in front of all the other disciples, right? Because it's always a competition with these guys. It's always like one trying to outdo the other. And so Peter said to Jesus in front of all the other disciples, he said, even if everyone else disowns you, I will never disown you. Kind of putting out his chest, right? I'll never disown you. I got your back. 
He even said this. He said, he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. That's Peter. And so you need to know that Peter was self-confident. Peter was arrogant, egotistical, hubris, whatever word you want to use. Why? What he's doing is he's depending on himself. He's leaning on himself. He's relying on himself alone. And that's why he failed. And so ladies and gentlemen, it's true for us too. If, we're, if we think we're all that, if we're self-confident, right? If that, that means that we're relying primarily on me, myself, and I, then we're gonna fail in our discipleship as well. So what's the remedy? The remedy is we got to be confident in Jesus Christ. Listen, the remedy is understanding your identity in Jesus Christ. The remedy is knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that you do what I told a young man yesterday to do who was being down on himself and discouraged. I said, here's your homework assignment tonight. Open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter one and two, and with pen in hand, I want you to write down who you are in Jesus Christ. According to what the Holy Spirit um, led Paul to write, as a Christian, I am blessed, I am chosen, I am adopted, I am redeemed, I am forgiven, I'm an heir of heaven, I'm predestined, I'm sealed, I'm saved, I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We gotta be Christ confident. We gotta lean on him, we gotta depend on him. We got to rely on him first and foremost, and if we do that, then we'll succeed as his followers. Why did Peter fail? Well, second of all, because there's a shortage of prayer in his life. You guys know the story. Earlier in the night, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there. Judas hasn't showed up yet. And Jesus is going to the inner three, Peter, James, and John. He's like, guys, my soul's troubled. Watch with me. Right? And Jesus begins to pour out his heart again to the Father. Guess what Peter, James, and John did? Yeah, they fell asleep. And so Jesus gets up from prayer and he sees these guys that he, listen, how many of you guys know he wasn't just 100% God, he's 100% man. Help the brother out. He needs some support, he needs some encouragement. But they're sleeping. So what does he do? The Bible says he wakes up Peter, Peter's a leader. And he said, couldn't you have watched with me for one hour? Peter, Peter, watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Do you see that? I'm being passionate here because I know that the number of you that are here, some of you are gonna be faced with some severe, strong temptation this week. And what does Jesus say you need to do? You need to pray so that you don't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so because there's a shortage of prayer in Peter's life, he failed. And it's the same thing with us. If there's a shortage of prayer in our lives, we're gonna fail in this area of discipleship as well. So what's the remedy? Super simple, pray. <laughs> pray, 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 pray. You've heard me say it before, no prayer, no power. Little prayer, little power. Much prayer, much spiritual power. And so we've got to pray, 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 and then pray some more. If we want a lot of spiritual power, how many of you guys want a lot of spiritual, and ladies too, want a lot of spiritual power on your life? 
Okay, I see 30 hands. I'm gonna wait. I am gonna wait for this right here until every hand is up. How many of you guys want some power from the Holy Spirit on your life? Please raise your hand. Raise your hand at home. All right, you can put your hands down. Pray. Little pray, little prayer, little power, much prayer, much power. If you want a lot of spiritual power to overcome the temptations in your life, and again, the reason I'm passionate is because I know that there's husbands that cheat on their wives and wives that cheat on their husbands. And families are destroyed and kids grow up in a, in a broken home. And I'm not doing this to shame anybody. I'm doing it prior to before it happens. She may look great. He may look great. But you need to pray so you don't enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray, pray, pray. And then all of a sudden, God says, oh, you think you're all that, and you can do it on your own? And he doesn't do anything. But if you get on your knees and you say, God, I'm weak, I need help, guess what? He sends his power, and then when you're faced with that temptation, whatever it might be, you're able to stand strong for the Lord. That's the key. That's the answer. That's the remedy. And so it's got to be quality of prayers, genuine, that's important, but also the quantity of prayers, got to increase. Why did Peter fail? Third of all, he was spiritually remote. And so Mark says, as they were going to the high priest's courtyard, that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. You see that? He lagged behind. He was cold, spiritually speaking. He was spiritually remote. And it's the same thing with us as well. If we allow ourselves to lag behind. How many of you guys know Jesus is a good shepherd, right? We're his flock. Stay close to the good shepherd. You go over here, you're gonna get picked off. There's a lot of hungry wolves. So stay close to Jesus. Stand with Jesus. What if Peter, what if, what if, what if? He would have been warming himself by the fire. He gets convicted over that first denial, right? And he says, you know what? I'm gonna make this right. And he marches into Annas' house and he takes his stand next to the Lord. What if? And Annas looks at him and says, who are you? And he says, um, sir, my name is Peter and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you heard it right. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. <clears throat> and I'm gonna proclaim that for the rest of my life. What if he would have done that? You say, he would have lost his life. Yeah, he probably would have lost his life. But don't you guys realize, don't you guys understand that Peter, after that rooster crowed, he thought a thousand times, man, if I could just have a do-over. If I could just have a second chance, I would have stood with the Lord, even if they would have killed me. But what was going on? He was spiritually remote. What happened? He failed. And the same thing's gonna happen to us. If we're cold spiritually, if we're lagging behind, we're going to fail in this area of discipleship. What's the remedy? The remedy is, instead of being self-confident, ladies and gentlemen, let's be Christ-confident. This week, this month, this year. Let's know our identity in Christ, Ephesians 1 and 2. Let's lean, rely on Christ first and foremost so we don't fail in the area of discipleship. 
How about instead of a shortage of prayer, there's an abundance of prayer in our lives? How many times have I asked somebody, hey, how's your prayer life? And the answer a lot of times is this. Oh, I pray all the time, man. Pray without ceasing, right? No, 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 the question is, are you spending quality and quantity time one-on-one with Jesus Christ every day? How about instead of being spiritually remote, that we walk with the Lord, that we stand with the Lord? You might have an opportunity this week in a group of unsaved people to be able to have the opportunity. God's gonna open the door and you're gonna be able to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Do that. You know how good you're gonna feel after that happens. And so the good news is that at the end of John's gospel, we're gonna get there, but at the end of John's gospel, Peter gets a second chance. I can't wait to get to John chapter 21. It was one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. But when we get to John chapter 21, we're gonna see the beginning of a life transformation. When you compare the Peter of the gospels with the Peter in Acts, it's absolutely, the change is shocking because he went from, Failing to flourishing. Okay, so we saw how Peter failed. How did he flourish? What happened? We'll look at the next screen here. Why did Peter flourish? Well, number one, he saw the risen Christ who restored him. And so in John chapter 21, the risen Christ comes to Peter. Right, this is the real fast version. We'll take a lot of time when we get there. Last chapter of of John. But, but here's what happens. Jesus has to ask Peter. Jesus chooses to ask Peter three times, do you love me? Okay, so everybody stay with me. Why does Jesus ask Peter three times, do you love me? Because he denied him. He disowned Jesus three times. By the way, when you disown somebody, you don't love them. Please, let's stop fooling ourselves and lying to ourselves. Love is not primarily what we say. Love is primarily what you do. You can say, I love you, I love you, I love you all the time. Okay, that's great. I'm not not saying anything against that. But it's more important, what do you do? And if you disown somebody, you can try to convince yourself, yeah, I still love them. No, you don't. Peter disowned Jesus three times. So Jesus goes to him, it's awkward. But he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's like, you know all things. I love you, I love you, I love you. He says it three times. And Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And man, did he ever. Just read the book of Acts. And so Peter has an encounter with the risen Christ who restores him back to himself, restores him. And by the way, Peter never lost his salvation. Please give me a break. He restores him to ministry. He restores him to fellowship with him. But that's not all. Peter flourished also because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The risen Christ told Peter in the first chapter of Acts, he told Peter and the disciples, before he ascends back up into heaven, he says, you guys are gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Let me, this is the difference between a dead church 
and an alive church. How many of you guys wanna be part of a, a live church? Okay, I do. I do not want to pastor a dead church. Here is the key right here to victorious Christian living. He said, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God came in power. And what, what happened? He indwelt the disciples and he empowered the disciples. And the next thing you know, after all this time, they actually changed the entire Roman Empire. And so, in conclusion, here's what I want you to think about this afternoon. I want you to think about if you're here and you have sinned and you're thinking right now as you're beating up yourself, man, I blew it so big this time. God is mad at me. God is through with me. I want you to know you've got to stop listening to the lies of the enemy. And you need to think of two things. You need to think of Peter and you need to think of the rooster. Last point, got questions. Used as a symbol, the rooster represents the weakness of man and the grace of Christ can you guys say grace? So the rooster represents the weakness of man and the grace of Christ in forgiving sinners. And so just as Jesus forgave and transformed Peter, he wants to forgive and he wants to transform you as well. And so the question is, number one, have you turned to the risen Christ? in genuine repentance and faith, receiving him as the savior and lord of your life. In other words, are you saved? Nothing's more important than getting that figured out. <laughs> are you saved? The second question is this. As a child of God, are you submitting every day to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, asking the Holy Spirit to empower you and use you as his vessel? In other words, are you saved and are you growing in sanctification? And so getting saved, it's not anything to get figured out. It's hearing and believing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of grace.